Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about a fintech forward approach to building an alternative investment platform. And joining me is Joe Ujibi of AIX. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. And, um, you know, I just want to start off. Could you give us a little bit of background on AIX, the story behind the, the company and your product? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we're a fintech forward company. Our focus really is solely on removing the friction and making it easier for investors to buy, own, and ultimately sell or tender alternatives. We were incubated inside a large retail investment sponsor, FS Investments. If you rewind the clock to about 2015-16, they had something like 85,000 trades in one year. And those trades were heavily manually processed. Uh, lots of paperwork, um, lots of NIGOs or not in good order types of trades, and they felt it had to, there had to be a better way. So FS went out and looked at the market um, to see that if there was any software that currently existed that could solve those problems. And the ultimate conclusion was that it didn't exist or certainly didn't exist in scale. So they spun up a project to build out a platform initially around subscriptions um, but ultimately uh, recover really sort of the full life cycle of an alternative. Um, about three years ago, I joined the team um, to really spin us off and to create a commercial enterprise uh, in the um, in the alternative investment space. So um, I'm sorry, did you say 2016? They were still uh, pushing papers to Absolutely. process these transactions? Absolutely. Yes. And I, at the time, actually happened to be a board member of multiple FS um, alternative investment products. Mm. And having spent most of my career in financial services technology, spent most of my career at um, at SEI that has done a lot of automation and bank trust departments, as well as in, with registered investment advisors, I couldn't believe how difficult it was to process an alternative investment trade um, because the technology really didn't exist. So ultimately, it's our goal to try to make trading uh, alternatives as easy as trading a mutual fund. Well, let's zoom out. So outside of AIX, so I understand, you know, you all are removing friction with a lot of these transactions with your clients and, you know, the sponsors that you work with, but in the whole industry, like, like where, what, what round do you think, or what inning let's use baseball. We'll yes. stick with baseball. <laughs> I, I, I'm always mixing my analogies, but we're going to using the baseball analogy. What inning are we with automation and, and using technology to process all these transactions? So I'm from Philadelphia. So using baseball as an analogy is a little bit of a sore subject for us. Um, the stadium that the Phillies played is really literally over my right shoulder here behind me. But I think we're in the second inning. Um, wow, there's still the a lot of work inning. to be done. Um, I think that uh, the technology is there. So probably from a technology standpoint, we might be in the fifth or sixth inning. But I don't. when it comes to technology, the game never ends. I think from an adoption standpoint, we're still probably in the second in the second inning. And and what well, first of all, I have to say as a Tigers fan, 
I'd be happy if we just made it to the World Series uh, anytime, you know, in the next decade. <laughs> Philly's had a great run. But back to alternative investments, what is prohibiting then user adoption of the technology? So the technology is in the fifth or sixth inning, but the user adoption is in the second inning. I mean, what's what's the holdup? Yeah, you know, I think um, wealth managers are busy. You know, markets are, have been certainly since COVID up and down, mm-hmm. um, more recently down than up. And there is a real focus on servicing their clients. Uh, when you think that the average institutional investor, sorry, the average retail investor or individual investor probably has less than 5% if any exposure to alternatives, I think a lot of wealth managers have been largely focused on the other 95% of their business. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, number one. I think that um, you know the operations departments at a lot of these firms are sort of set in their ways and you know tend to not want to take any risk and make any change. But we're seeing that that change. I think in 2022, this year, you know, we've started to see some fairly substantial increase in adoption. Um, there are a lot, there are a handful of us out there where position as firms that look to facilitate uh, an easier solution. Um, so there are a lot of messages being in, being sort of delivered in the market. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think a lot of firms are basically trying to figure out what's the best solution for them. Uh, but adoption is definitely increasing. So when you, when you say you've seen a tick up in adoption in adoption this past year, is that more on the you know the sponsor side from the funds, or are you referring more to wealth managers and more RIAs using the product? You know, when I when I came here three years ago, I thought it would be it would be the wealth managers that led the way, and really, it's the investment sponsors that are leading the way. Um, ultimately, they often get stuck with the NIGOs or the mistakes in the paperwork that delay in investment into their in, through their products. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what we've seen is more rapid adoption from the part of the sponsors. Uh, they like to obviously raise more assets. They'd like to do it more smoothly and a more uh, seamless trend way, but they are working closely with their top wealth managers, with the firms that are sort of the top distributors of their product, and bringing them along, um, and, and I think in an increasingly faster um, fashion. Got it. Okay, so the, the the adoption is that's being led from the sponsor side. I mean that makes sense, right? The, I look at it like with any new technology, any platform, any software the juice has to be worth the squeeze, right? It's going to take, there's a learning curve in, you know, learning to even use any kind of software or learning how to use any kind of, of platform. So as, as you mentioned, if ultimately only 5% of retail assets are in alternatives, you know, the, then a lot of wealth managers, there's just not going to be a lot of activity there that would really necessitate, you know, committing to a platform, but I think that's changing so rapidly now. I mean, especially in the past 12 months, maybe in the next 12 months, there's so much retail adoption of alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've always talked about, I've been in this industry for a long time and we always talk about the 60-40 portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I've been at a number of industry conferences in the last six months where everyone's really rallying around the concept of a 50-30-20 portfolio, 50 equity, 30 fixed and 20 alts. Now, um, some firms are there already, particularly sort of firms that service higher net worth individuals and families, uh, but others are really looking to get there. And so when it all of a sudden becomes 20% of your portfolio and or your client's portfolios, and it's the one that they're looking the closest at because it's probably the asset class that they don't know as well, 
um, the need for automation, whether it's uh, easy to subscribe or um, when once you're in the in the fund for five, seven, ten years, to really understand performance, to understand the underlying characteristics of the portfolio, you know, technology is going to play a a much more important role. Right, right. You know, I've I've talked with a couple different platforms on the show, and I think that one recurring theme is just the reduction of friction. Right? There's there's historically been so much friction in this marketplace that you've already alluded to. Um, so I want to ask about AAX specifically. Where do you feel that you know your company has removed the most friction? And then zooming out industry wide, where do you think you know the most friction remains? Like what what's what's sure. next? Okay, so um, unlike some of the others that you've spoken with, really our focus is as a technology provider. Mm-hmm. What we don't do is we don't do due diligence on funds. We don't do. Um, sort of portfolio structuring of a product. We're not a feeder fund administrator. Um, our take was that there was friction really across the entire life cycle of the ownership of an alternative investment and that we should really focus on using technology to solve that problem. Um, so we started with subscription and you know, subscription is largely um, difficult because just the sheer volume of paperwork, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of regulatory um, oversight in the alternative investment space and say if an advisor is based in Ohio and the client is in Indiana and the um, investment sponsor is in Florida, there might be three states as well as, you know, sort of uh, federal regulators um, having an opinion on how to, uh, who who can subscribe and become a a shareholder of these types of of products. Mm -hmm. So I think most of us in the industry really tried to solve the subscription process first. And, um, We've tried to do it in a in a very digital native digital way, and so instead of um, just automating or digitizing a PDF, what we really has is have as a workflow based tool that gathers data from uh, from the advisor and from the advisor's client, and then populates forms, or actually more importantly, just sends the information automatically, the data automatically to the custodian or the transfer agency. And really gets the forms and the paperwork out of the process. So, would you mention the different jurisdictions, different states? Is there legal logic that's built into that workflow on your yes, platform? exactly. And so, um, you know, there may be there's um, some states are more sort of um, robust in their oversight. And so, what we've been able to do is basically take all 50 states and you know inside the workflow put together a um, logic and workflow that says if you're in Ohio. Um, you've got to sign off on these clauses, where if you're in Pennsylvania, you might not have to do that. So everybody got started in the subscription space, and there's some good solutions out there. They're not all sort of data digital like ours. Some of them are just PDF fillers. But what we quickly realized, by, you know, sort of our first handful of clients taught us that the subscription process, although onerous and full of fraught with errors, um, is sort of a short life part of the lifetime of the ownership. Well, it's like getting married and you get through the honeymoon and saying, yes. all right, exactly. now the hard part's all done, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what we did was we really looked at the full life cycle. Yeah. And so there's actually some stuff that comes before subscription. So um, the the marketing things like taking the, the advisor's um, relationship management database and entering the clients into that keeping track of the clients or prospects of the advisor, 
who may have been shown the opportunity of the fund through the PPMs or through any of the other marketing materials. So housing, all of that. So there would be sort of the pre-trade activity and then the trade activity, which a lot of us has gotten fairly good at. But really what we're now focused on building and really delivering to clients is post-trade. So what's the true performance of my fund, particularly if I pay out fairly hefty um, uh, dividends or interest over the course of the ownership of the fund, a client might see the net asset value and say this fund hasn't done very well. They forget that they've been getting substantial dividends or interest payments quarterly over the last couple of years. Um, what happens if I want to move my fund from one trust to another trust? I want to change the beneficiary. A lot of activity happens over the ownership of during the ownership of the fund. Mm -hmm. And so where um, subscription got, has gotten much easier, um, the rest of that process, post-trade process, was generally pretty pretty manual. So what we've done is really take um, what we've built, the workflows that we've built, and we, we're really a workflow data and forms company. And so we can solve that management or that ongoing administration while the end investor is still is invested over the course of three, five, 10, 10 years or whatever it is, um, and automate all those processes too to make the client experience to the end investor and also to the advisor um, fully digital and and much easier to um, ultimately implement. Understood. So it's it's more than a, a hello sign or docu sign. Yes. yes, we have. There's so much context that is is very important in all of these transactions. And you know, you, you, we've talked about advisors kind of in our conversation so far, but I want to talk specifically about RIAs because. You know, when I talk with larger asset managers and also platforms, really every single company in the alternative investment space, they're trying to reach the RIA market, right? It's a growing Correct. market, but it's so it's so fractured. And I think almost everyone agrees that it's it's hard to penetrate that market, really reach in because of that. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, how has your company succeeded in reaching the RIA market? Um, do you feel like you have any unique edge that's that's given you inroads into the RIA market? Absolutely. Um, and I completely agree with you that really the advisor or the RIA market is really, I think, what people are most interested or, or sponsor investment sponsors are most interested in trying to capture. Again, if you look at the prequent data, they expect uh, there to be about a $10 trillion um, growth in alternative investments over the next uh, five or so years. Um, historically, most of the the growth in in alternatives have been uh, with institutional or or high net worth clients, largely distributed. The high net worth largely distributed through the wirehouses, you know, the New York centric wirehouses. Um, but everybody's now very interested in the advisor space. Um, I think advisors are are really um, uh, also very interested in entering the alt space. Um, they, I think, are they've got obviously. Outcomes matter to their clients. Um, they have fiduciary responsibility to provide the best possible portfolio. And there are a lot of them out there. So they're trying to differentiate themselves mm -hmm. uh, amongst each other. I, I go to a lot of conferences, industry conferences. And I think you and I probably talked about this in the past where there would maybe be a handful of advisors at a, a group of a thousand people at ADISA. And this year, ADISA's conference was probably about half RIAs or 40% RIAs. Wow. And so RIAs are really looking to um, to incorporate alternatives into their portfolios. But they're not necessarily looking for some of the funds that have done well 
in the institutional or in the high net worth space. And so they might look at some of those products because they're gotten so big. Some of the uh, the real estate investment trusts, the REITs are now you know, raising billions of dollars a year. So advisors come back and say, those funds are really um, becoming really more like index funds because they're so big and they have so much capital to deploy. And so what we're finding is we begin to talk to advisors and we've really just started marketing to registered investment advisors over the last probably year, year and a half, is that they're really looking for probably a couple of things. One is um, access to interesting product. Um, advisors are always looking to justify the 100 basis points, the 150 basis points fees that they're selling. Mm -hmm. And their clients don't think that bringing a very large, the largest real estate investment trust or the largest BDC business development corporation is really worth the fee that they're charging. So they're looking to find more unique, smaller products um, that they may not have access to or others may not have access to. So product administration is one thing we hear, uh, or product access, I'm sorry, is one thing we hear. Um, manual administration, very worried about that. So advisors have very much over the last 20 years implemented client portfolios using mutual funds or using some sort of collective vehicles. And those there's very little administration required of those. It doesn't make, there are not many errors made in, in that in, the, in, in enrolling their clients into those kind of products. What we also hear from advisors are the fees that are offered by the current alternative investment products that are in place are too high. To pay 25 or 50 basis points to get access to a feeder fund, to the feeder fund administrator, mm -hmm. it's too much money to charge their clients. Some are trying to pass that charge on to their clients and others are basically saying, I'm eating it. Other RIAs are saying, I'm eating it from, from their fees, which they certainly don't want to do. And then we also hear this full life cycle thing is that don't just help us get through the nice honeymoon, make right. sure you can service us. So what we've tried to do is take those four sort of challenges of the RIA space and solve for them all. So we are focusing, uh, we certainly offer uh, a lot of the very large, well-known brand name alternative investments on our, on our platform, but we're constantly searching for um, smaller, more boutique, um, more um, harder to find um, alternative investment managers. Now, the good news is that because alternatives are, are so po are popular now, there's more and more of those firms popping up. But then you have to be able to administer them in a cost-effective way. Used to be, you know, the fund had to be several million dollars to make, you know, to be um, to be um, cost-effective for the manager and for the advisor. With technology, we can bring that number down substantially, that size of fund down substantially. Um, we've really, I think, um, solved the manual administration process by making it almost as easy to invest. Um, we don't add feeder fund fees. Our clients to invest directly into retail funds. Um, and there'll be some pressure on those retail fund fees that are out there already, but there isn't sort of an extra layer of feeder fund fees. And again, we've talked a lot about full life cycle. So we think we've built something um, pretty specific to the um, to the alternative uh, for alternative investments in the registered investment advisor space. Let's talk about scalability and accessibility with those more boutique funds that you mentioned. And I'm, honestly, this is a, a major issue in the alts industry. Is that as you mentioned, 
there are these 800 pound gorillas in the space with these, you know, giant REITs, giant BBCs, giant products, and, and they may be very good products, but there, you know, are also a lot of boutique private equity firms, uh, boutique offerings, private placement offerings. And a lot of these sponsors and offerings, you know, it's, it's tough for, for, to make the economics work to get them onto various platforms, to get them distribution. Um, do you think it's really just a matter of bringing the cost down and bringing efficiency so that, you know, it's, it, it doesn't take so much capital that, that, that kind of that minimum threshold to make the economics work goes down? Yeah, you look, I'm I've spent most of my career in financial services technology. So what I would say to, to your question is technology can go a long way in making somewhat smaller funds um, profitable for everybody that's involved in the career, the manufacturing and the distribution of those fund products uh, or those investment products. So to use technology to um to do the administration of the fund. To, to use technology to uh, deliver the subscription and maintenance of the fund, it goes a long way. Um, there are a lot of smaller funds out there. They are largely managed on spreadsheets. And those spreadsheets obviously are technology, but it's not sort of a straight through process. Um, you know, it takes a lot to get a client to invest and then ultimately for the data to go to the custodian or if there's a transfer agent involved. So you have a lot of sort of old legacy platforms out there that were technically or or were realistically built for um, for more listed equity type of solutions, right. and and firms have tried to take those and turn them into alternative investment um, platforms or alternative investment administrative tools. It hasn't it doesn't work very well um, without sort of liquidity, without the um, same way of calculating performance. It just doesn't work very well. And so you're taking a, uh, a legacy technology platform that, again, has been used to trading equities or mutual funds and trying to add in the nuances of alternatives. And that's, I think, one of the greatest reasons these things haven't been, haven't been um, very economical. Now, I'm not saying that we can do a lot of $10 million funds. I don't think the numbers come down to that. Mm -hmm. I think the number's probably in the 50, or the 50 to couple hundred million space mm -hmm. that we can really add value there. And to your point, there are a lot of these bigger brand name funds are really terrific. And they've done a great job of opening the market to individual investors. Uh, but what we're seeing is advisors are saying, you know, I know of a guy who ran or I know of a firm who ran a really great institutional pool of money and, you know, in the alternative space. And now I want um, that firm wants to make it retail. And what we're really good at is going in and, and helping that sponsor um, or investment sponsor, asset manager, come up with a retail solution, not only helping them sort of from a technology administration standpoint, but helping them price it. And frankly, then making it available to the wider network of wealth managers that we are, um, that we're developing. Understood. Do you think with these, you know, with the smaller offerings, do you think there's more of a need for due diligence to be built in the platform? I mean, obviously, you, you know, you've stated your platform doesn't really do the due diligence. I guess, how does that problem or how does that challenge get solved from the advisor side? No, absolutely. So again, there are, I mean, a couple of different flavors of advisors. Some of them want to do the due diligence themselves. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to offer 20, 30 uh, alternative products. They want to offer three, five, seven alternative products. And they feel as some of their core value, they could do the due diligence. Um, others are looking to outsource due diligence or buy the due diligence. 
And so although we haven't created a due diligence capability, um, we have um, created uh, digital access or APIs or, or um, you know, ways for uh, due diligence providers or ways for actually wealth managers to access due diligence through our, through our technology. And so we're, we're pretty agnostic as to the due diligence provider. Um, I find that most investment sponsors actually work with multiple due diligence providers. And then the wealth manager who actually decides to distribute the product might have their own due diligence provider. And so our take was you really have to be agnostic mm. because um, people will, that both sponsors and wealth managers will look for multiple sources of due diligence um, to, for the product. So even if, you, even if you provide that due diligence, you're going to have advisors say, that's nice. I don't care. I want my own due diligence or yeah, I, yeah. I want this other third party. Exactly. There's sort of one, um, there's mo multiple sources of input when it comes to due diligence. I, I have found very few firms that rely on one due diligence provider. Understood. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in the private equity world. Obviously, we've had crypto and FTX in the news right. this week and how many just giant institutional type investors poured uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into a firm where it seems like almost no due diligence was done. So I think it's a it's a topic that hopefully is top of mind for retail investors, you know, and advisors both. Um, yeah, I mean, it was well, our take that there's a lot of really great due diligence providers in the alternative investment space. I mean, you've got big firms like Mercer who've been around forever. There's more boutique firms that have sprung up over the last ten years or so. And so our plan is to is help facilitate access to that information, sure, but not to actually um, author that information. It almost seems to me like the private equity space, private equity real estate specifically, um, you know, people aren't quite as trusting. It's almost better positioned, I suppose, to be to be wary and to do good due diligence yeah. than than perhaps you know some of these publicly traded companies or venture capital firms. Yeah. We're not a we're not an investment company. We're a technology company. So we really yeah. try to stick to what we do well, yeah. and and they sort of expand our capabilities with inside of using technology to to um, help grow this alternative investment industry. So let's zoom out. So you know, in the alt industry, we know where the growth has has come from. At least I think broadly, you know, we had institutional investors allocating more to alts really for the past several decades. Um, family offices allocating more to alts, but really they've, you know, they've pretty much met their portfolio allocation at this sure. point, the institutionals. And now we have retail investors who are allocating increased amounts to alts. Is that where all of the future growth comes from? Is is just the retail market? You know, uh, I think the institutional and the, and the higher net worth markets are going to certainly grow. Um, at, at, to your point, there is a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, Assets have already been allocated from those two investor segments, but those segments are also growing. So there's certainly more to be done there. Um, so alternative investment sponsors are focusing on building product that is specific because they recognize maybe the flows are not going to be the same um, um, in the institutional and the higher net worth. So they're focusing on retail. As you mentioned, they're over allocated in, in some of the, um, the higher net worth spaces. And the retail channels are, as I said, are under allocated five percent or less. Um, I think it also makes sense in in the in the retail or the individual market, because sort of the traditional investment um, investments have really entered a very volatile cycle. We all know this. I'm sure everybody listening to this knows that. Mm -hmm. And so advisors are really looking for ways to either add 
you know, uh, more uh, more growth, you know, more more return or, or lower volatility, and also are really good at doing that. Um, advisors are you know increasingly focused on um, the fiduciary obligation that they have to their to their clients. You know, there's definitely a lot more pressure um, from regulators on making sure that advisors are providing the right kind of advice to to their end clients. And we've talked about this 50, 30, 20 um, allocation. Uh, nobody's, well, some firms are there, but very few firms are there now. RAs are there now, but I think they're all looking how to get there. And I think because of AIX and some of our um, some of our friends in the industry, we're really removing the barriers. So whether it's technology or it's better due diligence or it's helping the sponsors create um, products that are accessible into the individual investor market, um, the barriers to entry have really begun to come down a little bit. So I do think, you know, I, I was talking to Prequin the other day and said, well, of this 10 trillion, how much do you think is going to go to retail? And they don't feel like they have the um, the data yet to um, to sort of talk about that. They've got some ideas. And I wouldn't say it's 50%, but I'd say, you know, my sense of it's close to 50%. Interesting. So I mean, obviously, Alts have had an incredible run over the past five, 10 years. Right. We're, we're seeing the volume slow down a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. DST activity inflows into to different, you know, segments of the alts universe. So do you think next year is likely to be a, a bump in the road, uh, you know, on that trajectory? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're working on, well, we've been working for the last couple of months on 2023 planning. And, and for us, because we're relatively new and our market share is pretty low, um, we certainly see growth, and even we see certainly see growth as a company, if if it's even if it is a down market. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, you know, it's really hard to predict those things. Um, I'd probably retire if I could predict that instead of still working here and running <laughs> yeah. a, a a fun startup company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it could be it could be a little bit longer. You know, we'll see what happens with interest rates. We'll see what happens with with real estate. You know, a lot of these assets are invest, invested in real estate. Uh, you know, maybe it's a little less investment in. Um, in commercial uh, industrial real estate and more in retail real estate where there seems to be no stop and and well there seems to be a real shortage of housing and so um but I'll tell you I think um again if I use sort of conferences as indicators when I talk to uh, you know at, at, sort of in a in a couple of days time a uh, a lot of advisors wealth managers uh, there there really is a um I think an, an interest in understanding how alts would help them deliver a better, more accurate, more tailored portfolio to their clients. And, you know, that's a tailwind that I think is going to drive growth for, for years to come, regardless whether 2023 is a bump in the road or not. Um, so what's next for AIX? I mean, obviously you, you know, talked about your approach and as, you know, a, a company with smaller market share, you're growing uh, pretty quickly, it sounds right. like. But do you have any, you know, strategic priorities or growth plans yeah. that you'd like to share? So a lot of those are around um, sort of scale. Um, and again, I think as we work, you asked a question earlier about RIAs and what is it that we can do to help RIAs embrace alternatives for their end clients. And part of that is trying to create uh, you know, the ability for, say, the technology to be customizable um, for uh, or configurable, really, for an advisor. So our wealth manager. So for example, we have some wealth managers that primarily only sell alternatives. And we have others that haven't sold any alternatives, mm. but want to get to 5, 10, 20%. So to be able to take the technology and, and really configure it 
so that, that it becomes really a part of the, the RIA suite of technology uh, platforms you know, so that if a client signs on to their technology, um, sort of the platform that they use for the entire client's portfolio, how do you make sure that the, um, the alts technology is really uh, incorporated into that technology and that it makes a really a seamless client experience? So we've been focused a lot on that is what I'd call sort of mass customization, but to allow an advisor to determine how they'd like to present alts, how they'd like to make them available to their clients, how they'd like to incorporate them into their um, client portfolios. You know, um, the TAMP or the turnkey asset management programs that a lot of firms like SEI and Orion and InvestNet and many others have built. You know, there are a number of really great TAMP uh, providers out there. They have been really, I think, key to the growth of the RIA space mm-hmm. over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, but none of them have really actively incorporated alternative investments into uh, a turnkey asset management program, uh, mostly because of the less liquidity situation of an alternative. So we are working with some of those firms to really explore how would you put um, alternatives into those portfolios and provide the same high level of transparency and customer service to your clients that you're doing today with more traditional asset types. So sort of understanding how to incorporate um, alternatives into uh, these managed portfolios or, or turnkey asset management programs is something that we're spending a lot of time and effort on and talking to a lot of people in the industry about. Um, I think that's probably one of the ways to do it is to package alts into the greater portfolio um, construct um, that meets ultimately the investor needs of the client you know, over short to medium to long terms, to long-term um, time horizon. So we're really focused on that. I don't think anybody's done that in a scalable way yet. And so um, that's something we think is is key to the industry. Now, I know that some of my friends out there are doing the same thing, mm-hmm. but um, but I think that's will be important to the, uh, particularly to the RIA space, is how do you cor- incorporate this asset class into the overall uh, advice and portfolio that you offer to your clients? How do you take the asset allocation that had largely been implemented with traditional products and include uh, alternatives to create a better outcome? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, thinking about the the RIA role, the, you know, the job description and how many hours are there in a work week, right? right. You know, 40 or, or maybe 60, but not not a million, right? So there's there's limited time uh you know f- to deal with asset allocation to deal with due diligence and so a lot of these you know sort of unnecessary friction points you know like they obviously right. the friction points exist for a reason but ultimately they, they don't need to exist right so it's 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 great for the industry that you know companies like AIX and others are are continuing to work on that next frontier of of friction yeah you know, and there are a lot of different um types of registered investment advisors out there, mm-hmm. but you can broadly put them into two categories, the do-it-yourselfers who want to pick the investment products. And we want we have a solution or we want to have a solution that's, uh, that's um, helpful for those firms. But also there are other um, registered investment advisors that want to outsource those things and, so, and use managed portfolios. So we also want to be able to support those investment advisors. I'm not suggesting that we become an investment manager and offer asset allocation strategies, but we would be the technology underlying technology that really breaks through the hurdles um, that have been present to date 
and provide inputting as inputting alternatives into uh, managed account portfolios. That makes sense. Well, Joe, this has been uh, really enlightening. I, I appreciate getting that. You know, I, I love talking to platforms and service providers because on the show, obviously, I talk with a lot of asset managers and yes. sponsors, which I I love doing that. You know, talking about specific strategies, but. Um, talking with you, I'm getting the, uh, I almost want to say a more objective perspective, a more uh, neutral or agnostic, I think was your yes. term. So I uh, really appreciate you sharing your insights. And that being said, where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about AIX? Absolutely. You can go to our website, which is AIXplatform.com and um, you can click through on there to, uh, if you would like to contact us. Um, to um, get more information, to see a demonstration, and for us to put together sort of what we'd call a discovery session to determine how we could work together to help grow the alternative investment industry and help uh, RIAs and advisors create um, better portfolios for their end clients and their investors. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to link that on our show notes, which as a reminder, are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Joe, thanks again for coming on the show today. Andy, thank you for your time and thank you for your support of the alternative investment investment industry. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 